This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we talk to veteran journalist Mark Cooper, who was a translator to President Salvador Allende and the Popular Unity Government in Chile from 1970 to 1973. Mark has memorialized his experience in Chile in his book, Pinochet and Me, and he's just returned from a month-long trip in Chile looking at Chilean politics 50 years after the coup and one year since the new left-wing government of Gabriel Boric was elected in a landslide. The first installment of Mark's writing on Chile went online March 8th on Truth Dig with more to come. There's a whole series of articles, a huge package, and it's called Chile's Utopia has been postponed. We get Mark Cooper's take on his trip to Chile in the first installment of his articles to appear in truthdig.com. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and really pleased to have Mark Cooper with us today. Veteran journalist Mark Cooper, not any stranger to the airwaves. He was a translator to President Salvador Allende in Chile in the Popular Unity Government from 1970 to 73. Mark has memorialized his experience in Chile in his book, Pinochet and Me, a Chilean anti-memoir. That came out in 2001, but still available and a very good read. He just returned from a month in Chile looking at Chilean politics 50 years after the coup and one year since the new left-wing government of Gabriel Boric was elected in a landslide. The first installment of Mark's writing on Chile went online March 8th, International Women's Day, on truthdig.com with more to come. The series of articles is called Chile's Utopia Has Been Postponed. On September 4th, 2022, Chileans held a referendum to approve or reject the new progressive constitution. Born in response to the massive social protest movement and revolt of October 2019, just before the pandemic, the demand that grew out of that movement was for a new constitution to replace the reactionary Pinochet constitution imposed in a fraudulent plebiscite in 1980. We've covered this quite a lot on this program. A constituent assembly was elected representing the most diverse sectors of the population and excluding the political class, which is to say members of the government and leaders of political parties. Their work produced the most ecologically advanced constitution or founding document in world history, even granting personhood to nature, protecting rivers and air and forests. It extended democracy, established gender parity and popular participation, granted indigenous peoples the recognition that they had never had before, and answered the need for universal health care, decent education, pension funds, access to water, sovereignty over mineral resources, care of animals and children, and so much more. Things that Chileans had been fighting for, but Funnily enough or not, the plebiscite or referendum to either approve or reject the Constitution, the new one, was trounced with 68 percent of Chileans voting to reject it. And this changed the trajectory of the new Boric 
presidency. And he has since backtracked, allowing former members of the Concertacion, which Mark will explain, into the government and into writing yet another draft for the new constitution. So Mark Cooper is going to join us and help us understand how Chileans view Boric and where he can go from here. And let me just one more time say, Mark is a journalist. He served as the translator to Chilean President Salvador Allende when the 73 coup led by Augusto Pinochet forced him to flee the country. This January, Mark returned to Santiago to observed the country's political situation 50 years later. He found a Chile transformed but uncertain, struggling to chart a course forward one year after the election of its first leftist government since Allende. Let me say one more time that Mark's article, part one of his package of articles on Chile 50 years since the coup, can be read at truthdig.com. So, Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you, Susie. And just a clarification, what we're doing is something a little different that I'm doing with Truth Dig. I'm actually curating a dig, an, an archaeological journalistic dig. So this is going to extend over three months. And this article that came out on March 8th, which is currently on Truth Dig, is one of the pillars of that project, but only a pillar. So there'll be more content added to it. I have a lot more than adding over the next few weeks and even another big feature piece down the road a little bit on, on the legacy of pitch angles. So. No, I'm really glad that Truth Dig now is featuring digs. That's what it's supposed to be doing in yeah. this. And we're not seeing enough of this kind of investigative journalism, at least, you know, on the online platforms that so and, often turn into just and, discussion and debate. Right. I want, I want to make a plug for it, not so much for me, but for the website, because I give them credit for, for doing this format, because it's very easy to get clicks and likes and even advertising if you run a bunch of hot takes that run 500 words and provoke people and then run off. This is a different idea. This is actually about knowledge and about going beneath the surface of things and really digging to find out what's going on. And this is the first piece. So I would encourage listeners to take a look at it. Again, not so much out of my own interest, but this type of journalism needs to be supported, and we need to see support for it shown and manifest. It's all yours. Great. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions by way of background before we dig in, and I know the listeners will very much want to get to the present, but this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Pinochet 73 coup yep. that ended up with President Allende dead, uh, massive torture and detention, and it brought a nightmare to Chile for decades. You were there from 1971 to 73 to experience that, what is called a blossoming of a revolutionary process. And it's brutal end. And of course, you fled the country along with thousands of others, let's say being lucky enough to avoid the brutality of Pinochet's savage dictatorship. But without taking too much time, I'd love for you to just kind of quickly, concisely describe that experience. And then, you know, we'll move into a little bit prior to what happened or what is happening now. Well, for anybody who lived through the September 11th, 1973 coup in Chile, either directly or indirectly by perhaps having a loved one there. It's a life-changing experience. It's for all of us, 
you know, we have two lives, the ones before uh, mm-hmm. September 11th, the one afterward, right? That created some problems for me on this reporting trip because I've been back to Chile four or five times over the last 50 years, usually for a short stay of a few days here and there, never for this intense period. Is there a month? And really, the country's changed quite a bit. In some ways, it hasn't changed at all. But other ways, it's changed significantly. And to see this kind of political process play out under these new conditions, one has to keep an open mind and be on their toes because Mm. the references of 50 years ago don't work. Is to say the schematic that one is tempted to impose upon the situation, saying, well, gee, this is the Chile I knew 50 years ago, so therefore this must be X. <laughs> that doesn't really work, because a lot happens in 50 years. And in fact, in the case of Chile, there was a huge, spontaneous, completely spontaneous, leaderless uprising, nonviolent one for the most part, in October of 1973, in which it's estimated that 4 million people participated. 2019, you mean, don't you? 2019. Sorry. You know, a 4% hike in the subway fares. Wait, Mark, I want to stop you for half a second, if you don't mind. Hold on to that thought. But I want to just say to the listeners something that kind of leads up to that, because we stopped in, you know, September 73. The historian in me wants to fill a little bit in in the intervening years and to also say that pinochet destroyed chilean democracy in order to quote rid the country of its marxist cancer and then implemented and i think this is important the chicago boys economic program an extreme free market regime that produced widespread inequality and it could be said that chile represented milton friedman's dreams come true not enough has been said i think about the slogan that free market economics require democracy, which was actually reversed in Chile, that they couldn't do it without destroying democracy. The model was imposed by force, and it wiped out the democracy that existed and flourished under Allende. And then this system lasted until the plebiscite, if those If some of you listeners watched the great film, no, there was a plebiscite in 1989 where Chileans were asked yes or no, si o no, about whether or not Pinochet should be president for life. And he was defeated. But as you say in your article, Mark Cooper, that can be found on truthdig.com, Chileans were voting no to bring the alegría or (laughs) happiness. And so, yeah, go ahead. Right. The necessary background is that when Pinochet left power in 1991, a civilian government came into power, which has alternated between the center left and the right a couple of times, but has remained in power until today. It's the civilian government. The problem is that expectations were raised very high by the defeat of Pinochet and by the return to democracy. And Conditions in Chile certainly improved over the last 30 years in many ways, including economically, politically, democratically. There's been a big difference between now and the dictatorship. However, in part because of the Constitution, in part only, the 
economic system that was imposed by Pinochet has been modified, has been humanized to some degree, but is still quite a brutal private-centric program. And somehow we got just from calling it free market economics, Milton Friedman style, to neoliberalism. Well, actually, (laughs) actually, to nitpick about it, the Milton Friedman model actually came and went. That was imposed in 1981 and drove Chile into bankruptcy and into a deep recession under Pinochet. And they had to jettison a lot of the pure Milton Friedman program and go back to some state intervention. Now, not to get involved in a big economic debate, which I'm not really capable of of being expert in, I will say this, one of the interesting aspects about Chile that goes unreported is that the Chilean state is very weak and underfunded. However, it plays a central role in supporting the private sector. That is, the private sector isn't just overcoming the state. The private sector relies on the state to help fund it and fuel it, which is a particularly nasty situation for Chileans, because it means that when it comes to social services, health, education, and retirement, most of that, we'll put an asterisk next to education, just an asterisk, but all of that is basically privatized. Mm. So the pension system has failed completely. The average pension in Chile is about $250 a month, which is half of the minimum wage. So right. And this imagine. is a this is the system that George W. Bush wanted to emulate and could not instead of oh, social security. It was actually cooked up at the Cato Institute mm-hmm. by the brother of the just former president, Sebastian Piñera. So this comes from American think tanks, and it's all about privatization. It's a brutal system for most Chileans because they can't retire. There's no pension. You can't live on two or three hundred dollars a month in Chile, not when the minimum wage is five hundred, and you can't live on that either. Wow. So the point is that there was enough disappointment generated by the thirty years of the civilian government, including most of that time governed by the center left coalition called the Concertación. And maybe you should just also say, just a footnote, that Chileans elect to someone and then they only serve one term, but they can serve another term, just not consecutively. That's my understanding. So you went back and forth between Mira, Bachelet, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. So what happened was that the small subway fare increase in October 2019 of literally five cents or less. Yeah. Provoked a reaction by high school students who began jumping the turnstiles. That turned into a confrontation with the police. That turned into a confrontation with the entire society because millions just had had it and came out in this show of peaceful force of millions of people for weeks and literally a couple months at a time being in the streets demanding change. And what did they mean by change? Well, different people were there for different reasons, and there's been a lot of misinterpretation of what that meant, including by yours truly. And you get set straight when you go and report it in person. But 
If you ask most people while they're in the street, the one thing they had in common was they said, well, we're against neoliberalism. That was the catchword. Neoliberalism basically meaning the economic system in Chile, right? And the privatization of everything and uh, yes, inequality, that sort of thing. Because extreme poverty has been reduced significantly since the dictatorship. There is a larger middle class than there was before, but it's a very tenuous one that lives on credit. Uh, credit even to buy a meal. If you go to a restaurant in Chile or go to the supermarket, you use a credit card, as most people do, you're immediately offered the option of the bank to pay it off in four installments. <laughs> you can buy lunch for $10 and pay it off over four months, which so, a lot of people do. Does uh, that make Chile like have a super high level of personal indebtedness? Yes, it's the highest in Latin America. It's also the most unequal country with an asterisk, and it's the most unequal because it's not so much the difference between the rich and the poor, it's the difference between the super rich and everybody else. Mm. The 1%, the top 1% in Chile controls 25% of the country's wealth, and that's sort of amazing. It's really- uh, So that set off this set of protests that were leaderless, did not have a platform, They were opposed to the big political parties, including the center-left parties that had failed while in government. And that's why one of the slogans that came out was, it's not about 30 pesos, which was the hike. It's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. And that's such a great, you know, they also said neoliberalism began in Chile and it'll end in Chile. Right, but I'm not so sure it's going to end anytime soon. Uh, (laughs) We can get to that, but Those protests went from October 2019 and were still building in March 2020 when the pandemic hit and everything was shut down. And the the government took advantage of this to install a severe shutdown, including uh, inability to leave your house without a pass, uh, nightly curfews, etc. This extinguished the movement in the streets, obviously. Let me just say something from outside, as one who was covering all of the protests of the year 2019 on this program, and all of those protests had just one thing in common. People were fed up with austerity and what they called neoliberalism. But Chile's, I thought, was the vanguard because it was so huge. And as you said, and say in your article on truthdig.com, that it just immediately went from the subway fare increase to having millions in the street, overcoming everybody's expectation. And I'll let you talk about the response of the Piñera government to those protests. But the other part of it was that we now think of it as the main slogan being about the Constitution, but that wasn't even one of the initial demands. That was something that... It wasn't wasn't one of the demands. Yeah, and I remember, you know, talking to... People just that when Piñera conceded to having a constituent assembly, people were demanding a constituent assembly. It seemed like, wow, this is back to 1917 in Russia, and this is a really oh. radical demand. Oh. But let's now let's hear your your take on that. Well, a month into the protests, an agreement was reached between some of the protesters, including the current president Bordage, and the outgoing president Piñera, to hold uh, in the next spring a constitutional convention and then a vote on a new constitution if it could be written. 
And this had not been a central demand of the people in the streets, but it's one that they liked because they knew that a rewrite of the Constitution would make it a lot easier to pass some of the basic social reforms that had been blocked by the Pinochet Constitution that's still in effect. Piñera, for his part, the Chilean government, had a very repressive, immediate response to the protests, which only provoked more protests. Is really an idiotic response and backfired completely. By the time Piñera proposed the convention, he probably proposed the change in the Constitution out of extremely narrow and opportunistic reasons, which is he was slated, he was to leave power in any case the next year. And I think his calculation was better the Chileans are, are in the streets talking about the new Constitution rather than streaming me up but do a lamppost for overthrowing the government because the main demand had been to get rid of Piñera, right? right? So this was his way. It was it was a deaf move on his part, but it's also something that Chile needed. There's only one problem, and allow me now to fill in the space. Yeah. That was in the fall and winter of 2019, heading into the pandemic, okay? Pandemic shut everything down. The next year... May, the convention, the assembly to write the constitution was postponed itself because of the pandemic. We'll talk about the assembly in a moment, but the assembly was held as a 388 article mega new constitution was proposed. It came out publicly in July of last year, right? for discussion, and then was voted down robustly in September of last year. Well, to begin to understand, and in the middle of this, you have the election of a 36-year-old student leader, Gabriel Boric, who is not affiliated with any of the big parties, who comes in with an independent leftist government, an independent leftist millennial government, right? But as we sit here today, one year after his election, yeah. one year after his inauguration, and six months or so after the Constitution was voted down, things are completely at a standstill. And people ask, well, how is it that you could have this big uprising and you have this left-wing government that gets elected who's supporting the new Constitution and get it gets rejected by three-fifths of the voters? Well, the partial answer is, that the referendum took place three years after the Constitution was called for. Two and a half, almost three years. And what happened in between? Well, we had a pandemic. We had an economic shutdown. We had an economic collapse. We had record inflation, record unemployment in Chile. The set of demands, the things that were on people's minds, had changed radically in three years, in 2019, maybe, maybe there was a majority. I'm not sure there ever was. Maybe there was a majority for granting personhood to nature, right? But in the fall of 2022, three years later, people want to know about bread and butter. They want to know about concrete, real-life reforms in their life. And what are these going to mean to me? And the Constitution had a lot of that in it, but it had a lot of what you might call cultural 
issues that here we refer to mostly as gender politics. Environmental politics and a, a ton of gender politics and a ton of identity politics about the native Chileans, right, the, the Mapuche. And frankly, that discussion in Chile is very new, okay, surprisingly new. I was surprised by the degree to which Chilean society in certain areas was so open now about mm. sex and gender, et cetera, where it used to be very closed. But it's still very new. This is not a discussion that's been going on for 50 or 60 years in Chile like it has been here. It's going on for 10. Yeah, and you could say, just, just to, to kind of put it into context, Chile only recently allowed divorce. You know, it was it was a Catholic country and super conservative despite its radical politics. Right. Chileans are somewhat conservative in their views, but also one has to understand that Chile also has the largest organic right wing in Latin America, right? The support for Finnishism is not ephemeral, it's not tenuous, it's concrete, and it's integrated into the system. So you've got 35 to 45% of the electorate who is going to always identify as conservative or right-wing to a degree. Now we have a new extreme right that got 44% of the vote. This the guy, Cast, who's like the to round. the right of Bolsonaro, I think. Yeah, well, he's an admirer of Bolsonaro and Pinochet. He's trying to become the leader of the Chilean right. Other sectors of the right that are more moderate are resisting that. But the point is, is that the Constitution, the Assembly, let let me see if I can make sense of this, because I think for people who follow this, the biggest question is, how can you have this Assembly that had such a popular base against the background of that uprising a few years before? Uh, produced a constitution that became so unpopular that it got voted down. Well, there's a couple of facts. Number one, for the vote to elect the assembly members, the, the constituent assembly, that was a voluntary vote. Okay, You didn't have to vote for that. And there are a lot of people who did not want a constitution. They just weren't in the demonstrations. There are 4 million people in the uprising. There's 19 million people who live in Chile. So you have a big silent majority or a silent minority who wasn't present in the uprising, but didn't want any part of it. They didn't want to vote either. So but they were. But could you just clarify, Mark, because it was my understanding that they had mandatory voting for that one, but not in the presidential election. Or is it the reverse? Mandatory voting was for the approval of the plebiscite. Yes. So a lot of people were pissed off that they had to vote for the assembly. It was somewhat of a self-selecting audience, okay? Somewhat. You had some conservatives voting, and some conservatives got votes to be in the assembly, as did some people from the old center-left Concertacion coalition. But the overwhelming majority were independents, and they were young people who had nothing to do with the political system, which means they didn't have much experience in it either. So... Their volunteerism, if you will, their enthusiasm, the ability for the first time to talk about gender and the environment and the indigenous in a constitutional setting. This is the first time in Chilean history. But I think one can say with a certain amount of clarity that they got carried away and didn't understand that there's a whole other 
millions of people out there who don't understand what you're talking about, right? They don't understand your language. They don't understand the language of gender politics, right? They don't understand what was called plurinationalism, where the Constitution actually said we should dissolve the Republic of Chile, and Chile should become a tripartite state of whatever was left of Chile and the indigenous and indigenous are 10% of the population. Now, 60 or 70% of the Chilean population is mestizo. They're mixed, but they don't identify as indigenous. They don't even identify as mestizo. So even race in Chile is a very complicated issue where the mestizos don't really even recognize their indigenous half, right? So while the indigenous Mapuches certainly deserve full civil rights and civil liberties. The fact that they deserve it doesn't mean that people immediately agree to special circumstances for them, including a proposal that the indigenous should have their own justice system. Now, I've never met a Chilean who can explain the current justice system because it's so <laughs> having a second yeah. one. And then there were other issues involved. For example, this one is really important. I had at least two analysts use very similar words and tell me that neoliberalism is not just an economic system. It's a cultural system. It's a mindset. It's a way of life. Uh, It's a set of values. If you have to scrap it out to survive, uh, as you do in a neoliberal system, that rubs against social solidarity and mutual aid. It rubs against collective action. It rubs against politics because you're too busy working to try and make ends meet or to pay off your credit cards. And you also are inculcated into a hyper-consumerist society where your value is really measured by the size of your television set, right? Mm. These television sets weren't even around 15 or 20 years ago. Couldn't get one. So even consumerism in Chile, which is hyper-consumerism, is something of the last 25 years, right? It didn't really exist before the turn of the century. So you have a country that's inundated with hyperlocalism, that is paying all of it on credit, that has insufficient wages and retirement, and is then exposed during the run-up to the vote, right? There was a massive disinformation campaign. Yeah. And they they hit on two points, which are kind of interesting. One is they found some some wording somewhere in one of the constitutional things that your house was going to be expropriated, which, of course, is ridiculous. Right. Your house is going to be expropriated. And even for the middle class, your summer house was going to be expropriated. Right. And then the other thing they did, which is astounding. It's not astounding. It's depressing that it worked because. I talked to a lot of people upon whom it worked. I could hear them repeat it back to me. The Chilean pension system is hated by everybody. Okay. Everybody hates it, including part of the business class, right? But to not get too deep in the weeds, but Chileans, Chilean business doesn't have to contribute anything towards social security. Social security pension is paid completely by the contribution of the workers. And the workers have 13% of their check deducted every month by their employer who sends the money to a private stock brokerage, which is picked by the 
worker. The stock brokerage, called an AFP, then takes your money, creates an individual account with it, and invests it in stocks according to your tolerance level, your risk tolerance. So you can sign up for heavy, light, or medium, right? But that's all you sign up for. And the rest is dependent on the brokerage, which means two things. One, if the market pops, the market cracks, too bad. You're out of luck. There is no floor. You just lose your money. The second thing is that while you cannot access your money until you retire, you can see it in your account. Unlike an American social security account, you cannot see the total, how much you've got in the account. It doesn't work that way. You put in money and then you get back a corresponding payout, right? In Chile, it's based strictly on the amount of money in your account under your name, right? So you can say, well, I've got $50,000 in my account. Most people don't. If it's $50,000 in my account, if I retire when I'm 62, I'm going to get $150 a month, right? Whatever the equation is. Well, the Boric government through the and the new constitution proposed, in short, an American-style social security, a modified one, but basically one in which actually the social security payment would be increased somewhat, right? And there would also be something put in by the employer. But that would go to the state. It would go to a central fund in which everybody who works who has worked or everybody who retires would get a pension based on some calculation or other, but not on an individual account. Well, and is this also a state pension then, or is it partially state, private? In shorthand, it would be basically a state pension. Okay? Okay. There's some modifiers there where you can continue to put some of your money into a private, but basically it moves to a, a, a centralized state social security system right? Much like the United States, that would greatly improve the system. Well, the right wing started hitting on this, saying they're going to take your pension away. They're taking your account away. And they're going to be giving it to poor people who don't work. Now, I heard this repeated by ordinary people, by common workers, who said they were sympathetic to the government that they hated the current pension program, but the one that was being proposed was worse because it was going to take away their private plan. So as one analyst told me, after 50 years of this, some people buy into the system, right? There's a buy-in. So you've got, for example, the UDI, which is until recently the ruling party in Chile, is a right-wing party. This party was founded by the secret police, right, under Pinochet. was founded by the Bina and was a hard right-wing party. Today, that party does a lot of politicking in the poorest shanty towns where they have a base of poor people based on their support of private property because when you live in a shanty town, private property doesn't sound so bad, you know, if you can get some. So some of the assumptions that the left, the traditional left, have made about Chile, about Chile in the 1970s and 80s, and in fact, the whole 20th century, are null and void, right? They're null and void. The working class movement, for example, doesn't exist 
because the working class no longer exists in Chile. There are no factories in Chile. There's a few. But there are no unions because there's nothing is produced. What there are are tons, legions of young people on bicycles doing gig jobs, uh, delivering food, or doing Uber. Uber's actually a, a higher class gig job. Uber pays well in Chile. But what you're describing, Mark, could be said about here or Britain or anywhere else. It's sort of like this new dealignment or realignment. Also, the same question about how the working class has been decimated. And what you get is a lot of poor people who are very confused or who see the traditional representatives who they used to vote for have never, ever represented anything. Oh, that they- There's some complicating factors because the pandemic created an inflationary cycle. It's still in course, which has raised prices very high. So prices right now in Chile are competitive with that of the United States, with the minimum wage being, what, $104 an hour, $3 an hour is the minimum wage. So, you know, you you can do the math on that. Also, uh, there's been a huge influx of migrants. I wanted Uh, to ask you about that. Ironically, or not so ironically, most of them come from Venezuela, right? Yeah. And there's reasons for that. Uh, not only are they fleeing Maduro, but the previous president of Chile, the right-wing president, went to Colombia a year or two ago to support the movement against Maduro. And he invited the Venezuelans to come to Chile. Wow. <laughs> they took him up on it. So currently there's a half million Venezuelans. The you should is- probably just add there, Mark, you know, Chile is a very insular country. It's got the Pacific on one side and the Andes on the other, and it's never had anything well, but Chileans. In the last 20 years, they had an influx of Peruvians, fortunately. Yeah. Peruvians greatly improved the cuisine in Chile. Uh, <laughs> so we, we applaud that. Uh, then there was an influx of Haitians who got scooped up as as butlers because the ruling class, the rich people in Chile, decided to be very classy to have a black butler. So the Haitians became butlers. Then the first wave of Venezuelans came in. They were mostly professional class and have taken professional jobs, creating some bad blood among the Chileans. The second big wave that's currently in course is much poorer Venezuelans from the shanty towns around Caracas. A lot of them were gang members, and they had brought with them a certain spike in violence, right? Not that violent crime didn't exist in Chile and not that Chile is very dangerous, but Chileans right now think it's very dangerous. It isn't, but there's a national psychosis now. But you you also write in your article, I think, that the pervasiveness of the anti-immigrant hysteria played up by the media has made everyone pay attention to this issue and buy into yeah, I guess the trope that crime yeah. in Chile yeah. is because yeah. of these immigrants. The three big issues in Chile right now are crime, immigration, and inflation. Sound familiar? So, so can we so, back so, up for one second on that? Because we're talking now about the one-year anniversary of Boric. Yeah. And he rode the wave of the protest movement and the Constitution, you could say, to come into power. But he also, you know, in his campaign, made a lot of promises about, as you've talked about, pensions and and raising the minimum wage and the health care system. You know, and he always was going to face 
tremendous challenges because he came in with a divided parliament and a divided government, a divided country, tired population, you know, and also a huge economic downturn that was exacerbated by the pandemic. So you start out, you know, your article about talking to people all over the place in Chile about what they thought about Boric. And I, you know, last night had a Chilean friend visiting from a left-wing family, and I asked her, and she goes, I'm not a fan, and then goes into explaining why in terms of how he came to power and what he hasn't done and what he hasn't handled. So let's hear from you in taking up this narrative, the anti-immigrant hysteria, how you see what Boric has done and how he's perceived. Boric was elected at the beginning of last year, right? December of 2021, and then inaugurated, I think, That's so just remember, that's already two years into the pandemic. So a lot of the enthusiasm from the October 2019 uprising had already been crushed or had been pushed aside by the pandemic. You can't continue to celebrate the social mobilization that took place for a month or two when you're locked up for two years and people around you are dying of COVID. Right. Right. So by the time he was elected, there was already a very difficult situation. And he was already facing a very difficult situation that a, a more intelligent person <laughs> might have decided to resign at that moment, looking at what was in front of him. He came in and he immediately raised the minimum wage. He added a little bit of money to the poorest pensions. And he did make all these promises. He also made a mistake. And the mistake he made was by agreement by many of even his own supporters is that he held off on pushing any of the major reforms and instead invested all of his political capital in passing the constitution, which didn't pass. So that was a mistake. Now, I don't know how successful he would have been if he had proposed some of this stuff because Congress is basically 50-50 or 51-49 leaning to the center-right, sometimes 51-49 leaning to the moderate left. But basically, he does not have the votes in Congress to do whatever he wants. It has to be negotiated, right? And now what needs to be understood is that when that constitution was voted down in September, it was a gigantic body blow to the government because it had stopped. It had only been in power for four or five months. It came to power in March. The referendum was in September, but they were on hold waiting for the constitution and they were pushing the constitution and they were pushing a lot of the parts of the constitution that weren't that popular, right? Again, this kind of a middle class, and you'll excuse this, but I can't, I'm sorry, I have to use this. People are going to get pissed off. But it was woke. And wokeness, whatever one thinks of it, I don't have a high opinion of it. There should be a warning here to American leftists about what happens when you actually have a country that has a history of popular and working class mobilization, as Chile does, even if the working class has been hard hit by the disappearance of industrial production, etc., there's still a working class. 40% of Chile is in the informal sector. They're selling stuff in the streets, right? So there's plenty of people who 
who work for a living, and they're not traditionally on the right. We don't have that kind of white working class problem that we have in the United States, right? Working class tends to vote left in Chile. But if you can confront them with a bunch of secondary, I consider them secondary. I know I'm going to get hell for this. Mm -hmm. If you you mix in a, a number of social issues that to them at least are secondary, stuff they've never heard of, stuff that makes no sense to them, stuff that they have no education on, stuff that they have no exposure to, stuff that nobody in their town or or out in the countryside knows anything about, but instead, you know, comes from the more elite parts of university life about personhood for nature and gender equity across everything and uh, reserve seats and getting rid of the Congress and replacing it with some amorphous, ill-defined regional councils is too much for people. And it was too much under any circumstances. After the pandemic, it was real overload. So they, the Boris government had inherited this awful situation from the first day, but it got further complicated by the Constitution. Right now, the three big issues in popular discussion are crime, immigration, and inflation. And the Boric government has had no alternative. One can disagree with me. I, I, I think it's unfortunate but true. It has no alternative other than to make concessions in that area. Boric had criticized Piñera's government for militarizing the south of the country where there's a simmering revolt of the Mapuches. Well, so has Boric. He's used different words, different methods, but definitely has escalated militarization in the South. He's brought into the core of the cabinet some historic center-left figures from the previous failed consultation governments, right? And put them in key situations to try and give people some notion of confidence because he was he was criticized not only for his inactivity during the first few months but the the trope that was plastered on him is these are a bunch of kids who don't know how to govern they're just kids of course the adults had failed for 50 years in a row we don't talk about that but we brought in some of the failing adults now to try and give the government some more gravitas also there was in the situation with crime is serious. There is crime in Chile, not a lot, but there is more violent crime than ever before. And it gets pinned on the Venezuelans partly correctly and partly not, right? But as you pointed out, apart from whatever the Venezuelans do or do not drink, you can't think of two Latin American peoples who are that different from each other. The Chileans are quiet and reserved and introverted, and they're called the Swiss of Latin America. The Venezuelans are the Venezuelans of Latin America. They're loud, they're boisterous, they're extroverted. You know, they like to dance and sing and party. And a lot of them are black and they're poor. And the Chileans, our Chileans are afraid of them to a great degree. So one analyst who's pretty left-wing, and who certainly was an analyst who helped Boric's campaign, said, the way he said it was this, it's like this, he said, you know, we had these other governments in before the Concertacion, the Christian Democrats, Socialists, they didn't have a roadmap, 
that they knew how to drive the car, right? These kids that are in power now, they had a program. Their program was clear by 2017. They had an economic program, but they don't know how to drive the car. He said, what would be ideal is to let the old people drive the car and let the kids with the map tell them where to go. But that's not going to happen. So right now, as we speak today, the older, and they are older, it's an older generation, the older generation of Socialist Party and Christian Democrat politicians, mostly Socialist Party politicians, who were part of the failed Concertación governments, they now have a foothold inside the Boric government, and they're fighting for more space. They're open about it. They want more ministries. Right? So, so, Mark, you spent a lot of time, I know, talking to all kinds of people from former government officials, current government officials, leftists, young people, because, you know, even as I sent you a couple of names, you said wrong generation, you know, and you right. wanted to get a kind of sense of what people thought. And from what I gather, Boric has mishandled his first, I guess, year now. Yeah. He has not learned how to spread the message. He also didn't pay attention immediately to the economic issues or popularize them. We've seen that before in other governments, including our own. People don't really like Boric that much. But is there a sense that, okay, he's new, he's young, he was 35, now he's 36, uh, he's got decent politics, but he'll do better. Or it was just like, no. No, I don't. Think, what no, was the no, overall no. sense of that? Well, first of all, his popularity rating is around 30, 35 percent. The government just went up to about 40 percent. And it just took a big jump upward in the last couple of weeks. The reason it did is because there were big forest fires in the south of Chile. And Bordage went to the forest fires and did his, you know, Mayor Giuliani thing, standing in front of the fires. Right? And apparently it worked. People liked it. It, it. He gave a sense that he was somebody who was responsible. He's also gotten some acclaim in the press for being very transparent and honest. Some people don't like that. They say, well, he's wishy-washy. He changes his mind. He doesn't change his mind. When he makes a mistake, he'll admit it and he'll fix it. And you don't yeah. see that very often in politics. You don't see where somebody says, hey, we were wrong about this, right? And he says that a lot. He says, hey, well, not exactly those words, but essentially, we need to fix this. We did this wrong. We need to do this instead of that. I don't think he's burnt out at all overall. And I think that there's a sense of great discontent. But, you know, I would compare it in many ways to the United States. Right now, if the sun falls out of the sky... And we know that Joe Biden's going to be blamed for it, right? It used to be Obama, right? (laughs) Now, the Boric, you know, if anything that happens in Chile is obviously his fault, right? He's personally letting in the the Venezuelans and giving them machine guns or whatever, right? I think that there's an acute understanding that he needs to deliver in the next year or so. The presidential elections are coming in 2025. And he can't run, but somebody else can. And this is not a personalist government, right? He's got a strong persona, but the government isn't built around him. It is a genuine coalition government. And there are other people in the government who have a high profile, could easily be acceptable candidates, including from his own generation. So 
There's an acute awareness that those elections are 2025. There's an acute awareness that in the runoff election in which he got elected 13 or 14 months ago, the extreme right wing, uh, Jorge Gast, uh, got 44% of the vote. That's a lot of vote. Yeah. Uh, now, in both cases, there was anti-partisanship. A lot of the 44% of cast vote were people who were voting against Bordage, and a lot of Bordage's 55% of the vote were people who were voting against cast, right? There's an assumption that there's going to be a civil war inside the right wing. It's already brewing between now and 2025, with cast trying to dominate the right. And he is much worse than the others. I mean, he really is an open Pinochet and Bolsonaro supporter, while the current Chilean right tries to take a little bit of distance from that stuff, right? And tries to look forward instead of backward. So there's an awareness that things are very much in the air. The new constitution now, there's a new process that was immediately agreed upon after this defeat on the referendum in September. A new process was agreed upon, which was a compromise, if not a capitulation by Boric, which allowed the Congress basically to take over the process, right? Who immediately set up a fairly anti-democratic system and laid down 10 points or 12 points that are to be the pautas, the guidelines that cannot be violated. The process for the new constitution includes a dozen limitations, boundaries, set in stone, inviolable. And those include, unfortunately, the right of private enterprise to provide essential social services. Now, to what degree that will happen, we don't know, right? But this stuff you don't get rid of overnight. The private medical collectives that are also criticized as being expensive and inefficient, et cetera, they're currently going broke. And the debate is, should the government bail them out or not? Now, ideologically, the government doesn't want to have anything to do with these things. Practically, there's 10 million Chileans who have their health care through these things. What do you do? These are not easy answers. And and what it is is that for somebody like me who's, you know, it's interesting because when I went to Chile in 1971 as a 20-year-old, in the middle of the 1960s exuberance and the rise of Allende, one could sort of see as a 20-year-old, you could sort of see your your most romantic dreams trying to play themselves out, right? In that, you know, here you had a a true revolutionary process that was going to be democratic and peaceful. Could they make it, you know, could they change? So you had these kind of operatic drama going on. Well, 50 years later, I come back and it's a different world and a different country and a different set of values. And now the question is, can this government survive? Can it make it? Can it not get voted out in 2025? Because a lot of the assumptions that one made or that I made didn't pan out, right? I expected when I got there, I expected to see effervescence. Now it was summer. So that was, but there was no effervescence. There was a lot of riot police in the street just as a precaution. 
Now, there was no effervescence. What there was was a hangover, as I say in my article. People were still recovering from the defeat of the new constitution and trying to figure out a way forward that made some sense, right? A lot of disillusionment, too. Some disillusionment. The other thing is that looking forward, and I didn't deal with this in my article, which I'm going to hide one more time. Well, let me also say, too, just as you think about how you're going to say this, that one of the subheadings in your piece that's on truthdig.com is called A Stab at Utopia. And utopia is around there a lot. And, of course, maybe that's what some of us thought this government would help to usher in. Not a utopia, but just, you know, a revival of the kind of politics. The Constitution was certainly utopia, right? (laughs) Okay, Uh, so we're talking about the balance sheet then. and Yeah, Yeah. well, getting back to that, there's some speculation. I have no idea. There's some speculation that when they – plebiscite is held on the new constitution, (laughs) which is going to be in December of this year. We haven't seen the draft of it. The work on it has just begun this week. It might get voted down as well, this time by the left, who is going to be disappointed that, that it doesn't fulfill. Now, I think that's a bit of a stretch, but only a bit. I would not be shocked if that happened. We have to see. We have to see what's going to be in the Constitution. It's not going to be much. It's going to be different than the Pinochet Constitution. It's going to get rid of the most noxious parts, and there's going to be some nice rhetoric in there about the rights of individuals and of society and of the earth and the environment, etc. The question is, what are going to be the, the concrete proposals? And uh, the Constitution currently has a lot to do with day-to-day policy in Chile, and so will the new Constitution. So there's a lot of unknowns. What, what I wanted to say, though, was that while my first visit to Chile in 1971 was instructive as a 20-year-old radical of seeing, oh, gee, this is what a revolution could look like, as a 72-year-old leftist, going to Chile, one can see that it becomes sort of a laboratory and says, well, we're seeing the real world difficulties in instituting a progressive government at this time in history. It's not abstract, right? This isn't an abstract discussion in the DSA in New York or, you know, around somebody's dinner table in Washington. This is reality where how does a leftist government negotiate its way in a country where 40% of the population is sympathetic to the old dictator, where the system of private property has been developed and inculcated into the popular conscience? And, And those issues of strategy, which to most of us on the American left are purely abstract and academic, we don't have any constituents, right? We have four or five people out there who might agree with you. But you don't have whole social strata that are hanging on your words. And therefore, if you screw up by emphasizing this demand over that demand, it doesn't really make any difference. It makes a big difference in Chile when the rights of nature uh, or the personhood of nature is given the same push as uh, a shorter work week, <laughs> right? Or uh, an improved pension. 
And it's a warning that you have to be aware of where you're, who, who is, who are your constituents? Who are you trying to organize? And as I, I didn't finish the thought earlier, but I'll finish it now. When the plebiscite was voted for, when it was, when 80% of the voters said, yes, we want a new constitution. That was to a degree a self-selecting audience because it was a voluntary vote. The vote on the plebiscite was mandatory. There were mm. 4 million new voters there who did not vote before, who many were just voting against the fact they had to vote, right? right. They were pissed off that they had to take a day off to vote. And uh, by now, three years had gone by, they were pissed off at the prices. They were pissed off at the inflation. They're pissed off at the crime they see on television all day and night because that's all the TV shows, the private television, right? So you had a lot of discontent going in that voting incohate discontent uh, produced over not the last 30 years, but the last three years since the pandemic. So, you know, it's not a big mystery as to why there can be a shift in consciousness. The question is, how do you how do you shift it back? And can you shift it back? And we're about we're about to see. I don't know. I don't know. Wow, this has been a terrific overview. And I just wonder, you know, maybe we should just say a little bit more, Mark, about the series that you're doing for Truth Dig, because this is the first part of the dig that went online March 8th. And this is, you know, a timeline in the beginning article. As I mentioned, it's called Chile's Utopia has been postponed. The entire series package I believe. And this first part is how the big awakening became a hangover. So talk a little bit about what, you know, is coming in the, in the next several months. Truthdig's got an interesting approach. They call me, I'm not the writer, I'm the curator. Okay. So we're doing a dig on Chile. And again, I want to encourage people to go and look at this and give the site some traffic because they need to be reassured that this sort of complicated stuff on the web has an audience and a work because this mm. requires some engagement by the reader. This first piece is a 5,000-word piece on the first year of the Chilean government. Next week, I'll be posting, uh, within the next 10 days, I'll be posting a photo gallery of the murals and slogans on the walls of Chile, which are extraordinary, both in their aesthetic and political content. So that's going to be a fun project. I'm going to be posting a edited version, an edited excerpt from my book about how I got out of Chile during the coup. And I have a, a piece that will go up within a couple of weeks with um, my friend Peter Cornblue, who is the, he is the world expert on the CIA in Chile. He's the Pinochet the, Files, I believe yeah, the book is called. Yeah, <laughs> he spent the last 25 years of his life going through all of the once classified U.S. documents on Chile. He is the definitive source. And I have done it's already conducted. I just have to edit it. I did what I think is the definitive interview with him so that it's a one-stop shop. If you want to know everything the CIA did and did not do in Chile, it's easy just to say, oh, the CIA backed the coup. Yeah, the CIA backed the coup, but there's, there's a lot more to that and a lot less to that than meets the eye. Right. Which is always the, the case, Mark. I'd like to say for those who tend to see an omnipotent, you know, CIA behind everything in the world, 
if they ever got anything right, it's usually an accident. And that attitude just erases what, you know, this word we call agency to the country, that it has domestic political problems. The CIA involvement in Chile was catastrophic for the most part. Initially, it was a total failure. It resulted in the commander-in-chief of the army being assassinated by a couple of thugs uh, working with Henry Kissinger. That didn't help anybody. Uh, It certainly didn't help the CIA. It helped Allende, as a matter of fact, who was meant to damage. And, uh, you know, even their involvement in the coup is uh, complicated. They were involved, for sure, and they certainly supported it. But they have a 60-year history. I mean, the, the, the history of the CIA in Chile goes back to 1964, really, or in, or in that, the early 1960s with the Alliance for Progress. But the world has changed. For example, <laughs> I want to point two examples. Joe Biden... And you know me, I'm not a big fan of Joe Biden, but both Joe Biden and Gabriel Boric, the president, the socialist president of Chile, both of them have agreed on supporting the political dissidents who've been expelled from Nicaragua, right? This is a big deal on both sides, right? Those who believe that, that we have a monolithic U.S. government that stays up all night plotting the overthrow of every other government in the world, and that might be somewhat exaggerated. And there's nuances to that, right? It doesn't mean that they found Jesus. It just means that they found reasons to support these dissident Nicaraguans, who, by the way, are Sandinistas. These are not conservative businessmen. These are Sandinista commanders who have been imprisoned by by the dictator Ortega, and now have had their nationality stripped of them, right? And Chile is currently considering giving them nationality, giving them a passport. And Chile has also not shied away, Boric has not shied away from slamming Maduro in Venezuela. And he's certainly no friend of Cuba or Daniel Ortega, who he's also hit very hard because Boric is... A Democrat, small D Democrat. He's, he's a Democratic Socialist. Is. <laughs> it's interesting because if you compare it to Allende, Allende was also a Democratic Socialist. And Allende's commitment to democracy was 100%. But you didn't find Allende was not in a position to openly criticize, say, Castro or even the Russians. He didn't have to kiss their asses necessarily. But there was a Cold War going. Right. And the Cold War forced choices that not on everybody that are always very comfortable or aren't very natural. So this Chilean government is not only the first one, first left wing government since Allende, but it's the first post Cold War government. And its rhetoric is quite interesting. It is devoid completely of Marxist Leninist camp. Right. It's devoid completely of the empty slogans of socialist solidarity that usually meant military intervention by the Cubans somewhere. Right. This is a government that's committed to democratic socialist change in Chile and is serious about it. Right. It's not there to play act or to cosplay or to make themselves feel good by railing against U.S. imperialism or whatever. These are these are quite sophisticated people who grew up in 
those social movements. I mean, Bordich became known to the country in 2011 when he led a massive mobilization of university students, right? Also, he, he brought in three of his comrades from the student movement to be in the government, including Camila Vallejo. Who became like an international celebrity in, at the uh, time. Yeah, she, she's glamorous. <laughs> the most glamorous. She was called glamorous by the New York Times, right? She's good looking. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's the spokesperson for the government. And she's in the Communist Party, which is a complicated uh, situation for Chile. But people should not lose their mind. The Communist Party of Chile is quite a moderate democratic organization. Though within this context... In the concept of the Borch government, they represent some of the more radical strands in it. The problem, the basic problem, if we want to look back on this first year, is that the October 2019 uprising created the sensation that there was a huge array of active social movements in Chile. And that's not true. They were act, they were brought out of the mud in October. They were brought out of out of sleep in October, informed briefly for a couple of months. But a lot of that was lost as soon as the pandemic hit. So when you go to the periphery of Santiago, which is still poor, the periphery is still surrounded by a belt. They used to call them shanty towns. Well some of the shanty towns now have got paved streets and they're more like ghettos. <laughs> Than shanty towns. It's a little bit more concrete and a little bit more asphalt, but they're still substandard and poor and dangerous and whatever. The social movements are there, but they're there in reduced and I would say almost miniature form, right? Mm. They're there, but there's 10 or 12 people, not a thousand or two thousand. And the kids are, the young people, this is the real world now. They're just as attracted to the new narco subculture as they are to anything else. Because all of a sudden, the narcos have gained presence in these poor communities. And they've introduced the the narco culture that you see in Mexico, you know, music and some of the hip hop and some of the dress and customs of the narco gangs is being adopted by uh, Chilean teenagers who maybe 20 years ago might have joined the communist youth or the socialist youth, right? So I think you put your finger on it. I said this while I was in Chile. Chile 50 years ago was a small, isolated, remote country, basically closed to the world, not just by geography, right? It had almost no consumer market. It had a very weak media market. Uh, it had a very insular culture. Over the last 30 years, Chile's joined the world. But that means it's inherited all of the world's problems. So it used to be a place that was very had very special social circumstances. Some of that's still there, some of it. But it competes now with, you know, an Instagram culture, with a TikTok culture, with a consumer culture with a culture of credit cards and a culture of credit, credit, credit for everything. So everything's at reach, right? All consumer goodies are at reach if you want to pay them off for the next 30 years on your credit cards. You can say, well, so what, Mark? That's the truth here, too. Yeah, that's the truth here, too, except that consumer culture is part of a much larger 
richer culture that has other aspects to it. And also consumer culture has been here for a hundred years until yeah. it's new. It's 20, 25 years old, and that's brand new by world standards. So people are still mesmerized by it. It's still primary. To a lot of people, it's primary in their life. One of the favorite uh, lines I picked up on this trip, I had three different people tell me it. As, and by the third time, I already knew what was coming. They said they knew that the referendum for the Constitution was going to lose. They knew it. A month in advance, because a month in advance, the first IKEA had opened in Chile, and the line to get into it was you know, like a mile long, right? It was the biggest attraction since Yule Brenner went to Chile in 1962, right? And again, one can say, well, what's so what's so noxious about that? I mean, we have IKEAs here, and people go to them. What's the big deal? Well, there's a difference. The difference is that this is the first one there. And its its popularity doesn't mean that people are bad or corrupt. It just means that their interests are defined differently than one might suspect. That, you know, yes, it's nice to be part of a social movement. Yes, it's nice to look out for your neighbor. It's also cool to build your own bookshelf and have one better than your neighbor, right? Because you saw one at his house the other day. Where did he get that? And now you can build one. And while it's a minor aspect of IKEA, it's a minor aspect, but it still resonates in this context. It's also do-it-yourself, right? It's also about your individual initiative and your individual ability, your individual capacity. And that's really where the clash is today in Chile. We're going to have to leave it there, Mark, but it just reminds me in my first visit to Chile, and I'll just, you know, leave that there. I spoke to my brother-in-law and he said something like, it's really sad that you're coming here now, 1995, to see Chile because before we were all about solidarity and now it's all about individuality. And I think that everything that you said in this last, you know, 10 minutes is a testament just to that. Yeah, that's right. And that's why these friends of mine were saying neoliberalism is not just the economic system. It's a way of life. It's a culture. And that's true here and it's true there. And in fact, neoliberal even misguides us to a degree. It's not so much about neoliberal. It's about consumer capitalism. You know, it's not a big mystery. It's not some big exotic system that was created at the University of Chicago and imposed only. It's what people do in this world, right? Well, you've given us so much that is so rich to mine in future interviews, Mark Cooper, and I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us today. And I should just tell everybody, Mark is a journalist who just spent a month in Chile. He was there during popular unity as the personal translator to Chilean President Salvador Allende, and now is on a dig, let's say it, to observe the country's political situation 50 years later and also to mark the first year of the young socialist democratic president, Gabriel Boric. His articles are part of a, uh, there will be a package of articles on Chile at truthdig.com. The first one went up on March 8th, and there will be a photo gallery to follow, plus other important articles. Many others. Many other articles. You're going to want to look at all of them. Go to truthdig.com. 
And do show your interest there because we want also to support the kind of investigative journalism that Mark is, has exemplified. And this series will certainly highlight. Mark Cooper, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>